It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. I'm Dennis Jones, the Patient Financial Services Administrator at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. I'm sitting in for Chuck Buck. During today's Monitor Monday, we'll learn how a skilled nursing facility approaches the controversial total knee replacement issue. Our special guest is Lori O'Hara, who is standing by with our lead story. Shannon DeConda joins us this morning to help clear up the confusion surrounding E&M levels 4 and 5. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. J. Paul Spencer checks in with his Medicare Advantage report and asks the question, what's the advantage? And Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Tim Brundage, who's calling live from the ACDIS conference, now underway in San Antonio, Texas. Good morning, Dennis. Thank you for the introduction. I'm here at the ACTUS annual conference here in San Antonio, Texas, where there will be plenty of opportunities for the physician advisors. In fact, we've been attending the physician advisor pre-conference event both yesterday and today with Dr. Jim Kennedy and Dr. Traley Charité, which is a rare opportunity for physician advisors and CDI to get together for focused learning and networking. We've had more than 90 physicians at this portion of the conference. During what we call the physician advisor's role in CDI boot camp, the attendings have received instruction on critical coding, clinical, and regulatory changes to the CDI profession over the past year. Some of the topics that we've covered have included the MSDRG, CC, and MCC structure changes that will begin October 1st, the MACRA and MIPS cost efficiency models, including outpatient CDI and HCC risk discussion, ICD-10's impact on mortality and readmission, including complication methodologies, and a great PSI discussion with ODE optimization uh, by Dr. Kennedy. Um, Coding and clinical concepts that are also amenable to CDI. We're super excited that one of our own physicians, Dr. Charlie Charité, um, is leading a denials workshop um, both yesterday and today with his experiences with recovery auditor programs and discussing actual denied cases with appeal letters that he has written. Um, As we know, a good CDI physician advisor not only knows the codes and the rules, but also knows the auditor's strategy uh, prior to writing an appeal letter. Dr. Lecherte outlined what worked and especially what doesn't work in advocating a a facility's relationship with payers um, and the recovery auditors. Today, Dr. Trey Lecherte is also leading a popular session called Physician Advisor 101, Uh, in which he will review the nuts and bolts of being an effective physician advisor. Attendees can also attend a session by Dr. Nicole Fox on cutting-edge changes that are happening in CDI departments, including expansion into the ambulatory setting, remote CDI, and point-of-entry CDI. The main ACTUS conference kicks off this evening with a new format and agenda with a heightened heightened focus on denials management, which is obviously a major focus for us here at Brundage Group. During the main conference, there will be a few sessions of interest for physician advisors many that will be presented in engaging roundtable formats. Dr. Lecherte will again speak at the main conference with the topic of CDI for the surgeon, what you need to know, 
and there will be a session on the very uh, interesting OIG malnutrition audit at Viden uh, with Dr. Vaughn Medicale and again Dr. Lacherite. There will also be a brand new track uh, for the pediatrician called Growing the Physician Advisor Role, a Tale of Four Pediatric Physician Advisors, and there will also be a roundtable session for that. I'm excited that I'll be speaking this year um, on documentation essentials for the LTAC hospital provider, and that lecture will be Tuesday morning. We also have several sessions running through the conference on improving provider engagement, which is really what the physician advisor role is all about. As you know, Dennis, I travel the country week in and week out. My mission to educate physicians on effective documentation. So it's super exciting this week that we have all these physician advisors in one place. We're champions of CDI. It's always a terrific, well-attended conference. And if any of our listeners are here in San Antonio, I would invite you to please come in, stop by. Uh, please feel free to ask questions. Um, I'll be at booth 711 um, through Thursday morning. Thank you so much for your time, and I'll pass it back to Dennis. Thank you, Dr. Brundage. That was the medical director for the Brundage Group, Dr. Tim Brundage. Dr. Brundage was reporting live from the ACDIS conference in San Antonio, Texas. And now, with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey, is Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Dennis. It's great to have you back again, and a special welcome to my colleague, Lori O'Hara, that's going to be presenting a little bit later. I'm going to pick up on the topic of total knee replacement. Um, very often, I receive calls from providers that get a request for an ABR, and in this case, I got a call last week from a provider that got a targeted probe and educate letter for outpatient therapy involving a total knee replacement in outpatient therapy. The first thing the provider said to me, I've been in practice 20 years. This clinic has been in place for 30 years. We have never, ever had an audit. All claims have always been paid. I didn't do anything wrong. Why did I get this letter? So after, you know, I got the person calmed down a little bit, we went through actually everything that was involved in the letter. And I want to share uh, because at least in the Targeted Probe and Educate program, they've made a valiant effort to really request therapy data. Previous therapy ADRs under the Manual Medical Review Program were not so good. So they requested initial physician orders, appropriate referrals in the treatment recommendations, the initial therapy evaluation or reeval, the signed and certified plan of care and any updates, and clinical notes for the build dates of service, clinical records or progress reports throughout the visit of the episode of treatment to support the need for therapy beyond the therapy limit, that's the therapy cap limit, even though there's no cap, a limit is still in place, copies of other relevant information, and orders for ongoing therapy, therapy activity flow sheets, your abbreviation and an acronym key, and your documentation of exercises and time to support your build codes as required by Medicare. They also request a valid ABN that's coded to the claim if that was relevant, signature rules, log keys, and most important, that dictionary data key. So um, this is great information for therapy providers to understand that CMS is actually acting under targeted probe and educate for relevant items. I'm going to move along to the poll today, and we're going to take a poll that is a replication of a poll I did about two months ago, courtesy of Dr. Hirsch, who's not on the show today. But how is your facility handling admission status on Medicare total needs? Check one, if it's inpatient only. Check two, if the inpatient is allowed for one midnight with patients at higher risk using case-by-case -case exception. If all is an inpatient, post-discharge. 
identifying any low-risk one-day inpatients. And check four if you don't really know what your facility is doing. Or lastly, not applicable if you're not doing total needs. And if you've got another response, please let us know in the Q&A box. Dennis, back to you. Okay, thanks, Nancy. That was Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we'll have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. Coming up at nine minutes after the hour, you'll hear from David Glazer, J. Paul Spencer, Shannon DeConda, and our special guest, Lori O'Hara. This is Monday, May 21st, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational webcasts from the industry's most knowledgeable experts for less than $360 per month for your entire team, $300 for a single subscriber. All webcasts, both live and on demand, are available anytime, anyplace, on any device through the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Portal. You will have access to more than 50 expertly curated educational webcasts on crucially important topics like the two-midnight rule and total knee replacement. You'll learn from outstanding industry thought leaders like Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Nancy Beckley, Shannon DeConda, David Glazer, and Andrew Walkler. For more information on the Rack Monitor webcast subscription portal, go to the Handout tab in today's program or visit the Rack University web store. Coming up later this broadcast, J. Paul Spencer reports on Medicare Advantage organizations. Also, Shannon DeConda reports on E&M levels 4 and 5. And Lori O'Hara shares her perspective on total knee replacement. Now we check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who is reporting on some risky business. Good morning, David. Tell us what's risky this morning. Well, good morning, Dennis. So a giant compliance risk is getting so lost in process or hierarchy that you lose the forest for the trees. I recently had a client where a medical assistant raised concerns directly to compliance about whether there was sufficient supervision of some injections and other patient care. The director of the clinic uh, sent an um, email to the vice president expressing frustration that the employee didn't follow the chain of command, presumably talking to the physician and then her, the director. The director was also quite upset that the employee hadn't raised the issue earlier than he did. She indicated that she would be complaining to HR about both of these problems. Now, the director's complaints completely undercut an effective compliance process. I'm a big fan of allowing as many points of entry into the compliance process as possible. I concede that there is a negative to my approach. Multiple entry points increase the risk that something falls through the cracks if one of the entry points fails to follow up. But I believe that risk is outweighed by the fact that you want employees to report. Um, And employees will be more likely to report if they feel comfortable with whoever they're speaking with. In short, give them flexibility. In this particular instance, the proper person in the chain of command was arguably part of the compliance problem. So in essence, the director was about to criticize an employee for not reporting a problem to the problem. That's nuts. So... Even if the problem um, wasn't with the employee's direct supervisor, you don't look a gift compliance report in the mouth. I certainly agree with the wish that the employee had raised the concern earlier, but when it comes to compliance, or really just about anything, a carrot is more effective than a stick. A couple of weeks ago, I cited research by Professors Kahneman and Tversky, as reported in Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project. Pretty much all of the psychologic economic research 
suggests people respond more favorably to incentives than to punishment. The director should be thanking the employee for raising the concern, and then perhaps express the hope that next time the employee will do it earlier. But if employees learn that they'll be disciplined for reporting a topic, um, for not reporting a topic fast enough, it's more likely that the employee will simply choose not to report the concern the next time instead of reporting it earlier. By raising HR issues after this person brought a complaint, this director was inviting a retaliation complaint and throwing sand in the gears of compliance. The best compliance programs focus on making employees feel quite comfortable. Not only should they feel comfortable making a report, they should feel absolutely confident acknowledging their own mistakes. Think about a well-run peer review program. It'll use a morbidity and mortality conference to critically self-examine behavior. Rather than focusing on blame, it focuses on how to improve the system. Compliance should take a lesson from these more care-oriented programs. Now, we're going to be off for Memorial Day next week, but in two weeks, I'm going to talk about how I recommend you use an addictive drug to improve your compliance process. Perhaps that piqued your curiosity. So, Dennis, I'm not going to tell you... Don't believe in love. Or not to believe in anything that you can't waste. But I will tell you, don't call people a stupid girl like Shirley Manson and Garbage did. Back to you. Okay, thanks, David. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on Medicare Advantage organizations is Monitor Monday National Correspondent Jay Paul Spencer. Good morning, Dennis, and good morning, everyone. Well, a few shows back, you may remember that I talked about a change in Medicare Part C and D, that would be Medicare Advantage and the prescription drug program, that would add something called supplemental health care benefits under their roster of uh of benefits that there are offered by Medicare's part Medicare's part C and part C and D. Now, what what are we talking about when we get into the specifics of this particular program? Well, first, we're talking about the benefits that are going to be added to part C and D programs as of 2019. So, uh recently CMS had a program where they put out some uh, uh explanatory uh slides to indicate exactly what they're talking about when they talk about supplemental benefits. Uh, now, what they're talking about is something that is not covered by original Medicare uh, that is primarily health-related, and we'll get into the uh, definition of that momentarily, and for which the plan must incur a non-zero direct medical cost. So when we're talking about primarily health-related def- uh, services uh, under supplemental benefits, CMS uses the definition of an item or service that is used to diagnose, prevent, or treat an illness or injury, compensate for physical impairments, act to ameliorate the functional or psychological impact of injuries or health conditions, 
or reduce avoidable emergency and healthcare utilization. The listeners on the program would realize that very quickly that that is CMS speak, but they would want to know a few more specifics about what would be uh, put forward. So in plain English, the requirements are that the services or supplemental benefits must be for something that's medically appropriate, it must focus directly on an enrollee's healthcare needs, and it must be recommended by a physician or licensed medical professional as part of a care plan, if not directly provided by that physician or licensed care professional. Uh, it can't be used for primarily for comfort, general use, or other non-medical reasons, and it must not include items and or services used to induce enrollment, uh, something very important uh, to put forward. So they, they bring some supplemental benefit examples to the fore. They're talking about things such as adult daycare services that are provided outside the home, uh, such as uh, activities with daily living and provided by staff with whose qualifications or supervision meet state licensing requirements. They're talking about home-based palliative care uh, that are services not covered by Medicare in the home for palliative care to diminish symptoms of terminally ill members, basically things that don't fall under the hospice care program. Uh, they're talking about in-home support services, uh, such as uh, uh, you know, by a personal care attendant or other individual that's providing these services. They also offer uh, non-emergent uh, transportation or medical services. This is very interesting because sometimes these services, based on how they are put forward in the community, are sometimes covered by Medicaid, depending on the state where you live in. So coordinating these would be very interesting. Uh, and this would be transportation to obtain either Part A, B, or D Medicare services. Uh, and uh, the last example that they give is home and bathroom safety devices and modifications. And these would be non-structural uh, and they would be uh, based uh, on things that would be uh, preventing injuries in the home or the bathroom in addition to providing and installing appropriate safety devices. So obviously there are going to be uh, some more examples coming out as we get closer to 2019 and these supplemental benefits become available through Medicare Part C, but it's something that is going to be beneficial to enrollees who have decided to go the non-traditional Medicare route and apply to Part C and D. And with that, I'll throw it back to Dennis. Okay, thanks, Paul. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant for Doctors Management. E&M Levels 4 and 5 continue to generate confusion. Here now to clear up any lingering uncertainty is Shannon DeConda. Good morning, Shannon. Welcome to Monitor Monday. Good morning, Dennis, and thank you again to everyone for being part of today's broadcast. Um, I just want to start out rather stern. I think it's time that we throw everything out the window that we think we know about documentation guidelines and start over again. Yeah, you heard me right. I didn't say throw the guidelines out. I said throw out what you know or what you think you know and start over again. Most of us, what we know and how we audit and how we code E&M was passed down to us from on-the-job training. And don't get me wrong, I am so thankful for OJT, I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for it. But let's face it, most of the time, it's not always the rules, but it's someone else's opinion about the rules or the lack thereof. 
those of you coding E&M or auditing E&M on a regular basis, when was the last time you actually read 95 or 97 documentation guidelines? It should be at least once a year, but truthfully, more frequently than that. Each time I read them, I find something new that I can take away. But more than that, when you read them, it opens your mind and you will begin to understand the rules we know versus guidelines we have been provided. You see, the guidelines do work hand in hand with medical necessity, but the problem is, is most people don't understand medical necessity. Too often we get wrapped up in counting HPI and review of systems and all the other components, and yeah, they matter, but the overarching criterion factor is is, of course, medical necessity. Medical necessity is the complexity behind treating the individual patient on that specific date and certainly something that defines our difference between a four and a five. It's not what half-populated template the provider decided to use that is population-specific and not patient-centric. It's an encounter that is created by that provider for that patient for that data service and is driven not by the treatments for the patient, but instead, how sick is this treat patient? How complex is this patient's problems? When you allow medical necessity, wait, quite frankly, complexity of care, because it's a better term, because then a physician will argue with a non-clinician that we shouldn't be assessing their medical necessity. But what we have to understand is we're evaluating documentation, not what happened behind the closed door, that's medical necessity, but rather the complexity of care that the provider chose to document through their encounter, defining how sick the patient is or how not sick the patient is. The true difference between not just a four and a five, but between all levels of service is up to the provider and what they choose to tell us through the patient encounter. Documentation's original purpose was continuity of care amongst providers. Today, documentation is more commonly a reimbursement requirement. Yes, I know it's about continuity of care also, but guys, you've read the same notes I've read, and many of them don't tell us anything about the individual patient encounter, much less help to drive continuity of care. Until the complexity of care is driven to support the encounter along with medical uh, documentation guidelines, we will not get that patient-centric, visit-centric message to drive the encounter. We need to stop trying to get physician buy-in in creating better documentation because buy-in indicates that I'm coercing you or I'm manipulating you to do something. Instead, we need to help providers embrace documentation and understand that it is a representation of them and their work on that piece of paper. When I send my CV or resume or create a report, I want to make sure it's the best representation of me. And we need to get our providers to understand that's what their documentation should do. Once they adapt and embrace this fact, they will know that true medical necessity and complexity of care is shown through the documentation. And suddenly, not only will you be able to tell the difference between a four and a five, but a three, a four, and a five, and every other level of service. And with that, I'll hand it back over to you, Dennis. Okay. Thanks, Shannon. That was Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder and president of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, NAMAS. Our lead story this morning is about the controversial topic of total knee replacement. Here now with a perspective on TKR from a long-term care provider is our special guest, Lori O'Hara. 
Good morning, Lori. Welcome to Monitor Monday. Good morning, Dennis. Thank you so much for having me on this morning. So questions about the right recovery setting for our new TKA patients continue. We all know that routine help with ADLs is not considered a reasonable justification for Part A stay, but at the same time, the absence of a caregiver somehow supports a skilled stay for a post-op ortho patient. How can both of these things be true? Setting aside the more complicated patients who really do need to have their first couple of weeks of rehab daily as an inpatient, the first consideration here is that there's nothing routine about a patient who's just had surgery, even when we as providers expect the recovery to be relatively brief and without a lot of risk. But a patient doesn't routinely have a surgical incision. They don't routinely take post-op meds. They're not routinely covering from sedation or anesthesia. They don't routine, routinely have gross stability or an elevated risk for an infection or a DVT. So the context is important. We're not talking about ongoing needs for ADL help. We're talking about a new medical and functional profile because of an acute event. When identifying the most appropriate level of care, start with the patient and then problem solve outward. Rather than starting with how much help does the patient have available, start with what does the patient need and then analyze accordingly. A patient either needs medical oversight and physical support following surgery or they don't. And then the proper setting is the place where that presentation intersects the lowest level of safe care. Perhaps the patient does have a willing family member or close friend, but even then, the home discharge plan isn't automatic because, again, what we're really doing here isn't just finding a person who's going to help the patient get dressed. We're identifying a person to provide post-op oversight. If such a person exists and the team is confident in their ability, then we have the best possible scenario. But if the friends or family are not willing or the patient is reluctant to be in their care, then the patient's needs can't be based on what the hospital team thinks it's reasonable for someone other than the patient to do. Barriers to a viable caregiver can include everything from financial hardship to concerns over safety. Those limitations can preclude what seems to us on the other side like perfectly reasonable discharge solutions. But in those cases, Functionally, there's as little viable oversight as the patient who has no one. And if we're okay sending the patient with no one to the, to the SNF, then we can't create an arbitrary barrier for the patient who has someone getting that exact same care just because we think that someone should really do more. So the question, can someone qualify for SNF care just because they don't have a caregiver, isn't the right question for our TKA folks because care doesn't describe their needs. The better question is, can someone recovering from surgery who doesn't have appropriate oversight in the home qualify for SNF care? And then the answer is absolutely, even if it's only very briefly. But determining that a patient who has no one is somehow more eligible than a patient who has an unwilling or an unable someone isn't actually part of the CMS guidelines. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori O'Hara. Lori is the lead of the Appeals and Clinical Review Team for Ensign Services. Ensign is a provider of skilled nursing and assisted living services. Now it's the time for the results of our Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here is Nancy Beckley. All righty, Dennis, keeping once again on our theme of total knee replacement for our listeners today, 16% said for total knee replacement, they are patients are inpatient only for patients with a documented expectation of two midnights. 27% of our listeners said inpatient allowed for one midnight patient at higher risk using case-by-case exception. 
Number three is all as inpatient and post-discharge with a self-denial, any low-risk one-day inpatient, that's at 5%. 30% of our listeners this morning aren't clear what their facility is doing, and 20% it's a non-applicable item. I'm going to address real quickly two comments that we received. Matt said that they're defaulting everything as outpatients, and patients are only admitted if they develop complications. And Robin wants to know why doesn't the poll include procedure starts as outpatient and is reviewed post-surgery for medical necessity to move inpatient. So I guess there's an endless number of options we could have, Dennis, but this was one so we could do for comparison purposes. And maybe Lori can give us some insight on an additional poll. Back to you, Dennis. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that we've been receiving. You bet. So I've got one for Shannon. So, Shannon, you mentioned the 95 and the 97 guidelines. We've got about a minute left. If you could just kind of quickly describe the difference between the two, and do you have free reign as to which you pick? That's actually a great question. So, as an auditor, when auditing the note, I get to choose which one yields the highest code. It's like the only time in our career we get to see which one pays more, which one supports the higher level and use it. Um, as to a provider, they may use whichever guidelines that they feel works best with their own practice. Back in 2013, National Carrier Guidance came out and said that we could actually integrate the two. So for 97 documentation guidelines, that means that we could use a status of three chronic or inactive problems, but then use a 95 exam, which is more of a broad stroke over each organ system. However, not all carriers do recognize the blended approach. So more than likely, most of the time, you'll see specialists using 97 and other providers using 95, although there's no requirement of who uses what when. Thanks much, Shannon. Dennis, back to you. Okay, that's going to be a wrap for us. Thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists. Uh, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Dr. Tim Brundage, Shannon DeConda, J. Paul Spencer, and our special guest, Lori O'Hara. We thank you for being with us this morning, and we look forward to your returning two Mondays from now when Chuck Buck returns. Until then, I'm Dennis Jones reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thanks very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.